Coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group, this is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello and welcome back to the DNS podcast. Our topic for this episode is enteral and parenteral access featuring Neil Ede. Neil is a pediatric surgery nurse practitioner with Brown Physicians Group in Providence, Rhode Island, as well as a senior clinical instructor with the Brown University School of Medicine. He recently spoke on this topic as part of Aspen's Nutrition Practice and Science Conference held virtually on March 20th through 23rd, 2021. Neil, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. So to get started, um, please tell us about your role on the pediatric surgery team at Brown. Okay. I've been a pediatric nurse for 40 years. And for the last 22 years, I've uh, worked in advanced practice here at Brown. I have functioned in the role of clinical nurse specialist elsewhere prior to that, but practiced as a basic nurse for at least 10 years before going into the advanced practice role. 22 years ago, I came here to Brown and to uh, Hasbro Children's Hospital for pediatric general surgery. And it was like coming home because my first job out of nursing school was as a nurse in a pediatric surgical special care unit. Uh, I really enjoy the population. It's a very a diverse population. We cover trauma, burns. Uh, we cover the neonatal intensive care unit. Any child that has rerouting surgeries of the GI tract, all the patients who are uh, intestinal failure are followed by us uh, and uh, and. Uh, uh, children with uh, complex feeding disorders. Uh, I run a bowel management program for anorectal malformation and Hirschsprung's disease. So it's a pretty, uh, unlike adult general surgery, where it's highly specialized, we're very much generalists. Um, but I did over the past 22 years start working uh, in collaboration with one of our surgeons, Arlette Kirk Jabasha who, uh, like our other surgeons, have their own special niche. Uh, Hers was uh, nutrition support, and all the intestinal failure patients were followed by her and I. Uh, She recently retired. I think uh, I've learned just about everything I know about uh, nutrition support from her. Uh, And when she left, I was asked my, my division chair to start a multidisciplinary team which is really the model uh, for uh, management of intestinal failure anyway. Um, it was a long time overdue, but suffice to say that he asked me to do that. And I've been working very closely with the nurse practitioner in the gastroenterology service, as well as one of their attendings. Uh, uh, we have a dietitian of nutrition support that uh, as the primary dietitian for that team. Uh, and uh, we now have a multidisciplinary clinic uh, where all those children are seen. Uh, and uh, we round, uh, in addition to seeing those patients in clinic, we round and uh, uh, as a team twice a month to discuss all of the patients, both inpatient and outpatient. 
I've worked very closely with dietitians over the years in managing these kids, almost independently, just between the two of us. Uh, uh, in addition to the surgeon, when she's out of town, I'm writing all the TPN. So it was a very unique role in pediatrics, as some of you may know, because uh, you know the, the, the gold standard for managing these kids is a nutrition support team. So I was really excited about starting this multidisciplinary group which started seeing patients in January this year. And we've currently seen all of the nutritional uh, uh, support patients with intestinal failure in that clinic. And it, I think it's really made a huge difference in terms of not only quality of care, but patient satisfaction. So that's sort of in a nutshell, my role. I'm sort of a master of, uh, 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 sort of uh, have my hands in a lot of different pots, having a lot of different hats. But my, my true love is nutrition support. And through that is my relationship with Aspen over the past few years. And now I'm currently the uh, chair of the nutrition support nursing section of that group, which has uh, been also a great learning experience. Yeah. So it sounds like through your, your multidisciplinary team, I mean, you really are seeing a wide spectrum of pediatric patients. Yes, well, well, the the multidisciplinary team is large is is exclusively intestinal rehab patients, and that's what the purpose of that group is. Although our surgeons, we we have a, a huge uh, catchment area, and we also have a very diverse population. As I said, we cover trauma, burns, but even though we are covering all those different services, nutrition support is a huge piece of all of that work. Uh, however, those patients are not managed in our intestinal failure clinic, but I do work very closely with the dietitians and the surgeons to provide nutrition support for our burn patients, for our trauma patients, uh, for our ICU patients, for our NICU patients. Uh, we, we do work very collaboratively in that regard. So walk us through your process when you're assessing a patient to determine what type of enteral or parenteral access is most appropriate? Well, uh, several things. Primarily, uh, are they tolerating a diet? Are they capable of tolerating a diet? Uh, are they even a candidate for enteral nutrition? Most are. Um, and um, and uh, when I think about access for enteral nutrition, I think about, well, how long is this patient going to need that? Uh, is it uh, four to six weeks, in which case a nasogastric or nasoenteric feeding tube might suffice? Is it greater than that? Would we need to now consider a gastrostomy or jejunostomy tube placement? Um, and I think the same goes for uh, parenteral nutrition. Uh, is it a short course? Is it supplementing their nutrition support? Are they meeting some of their needs uh, uh, through ent the enteral route? And need supplementation, um, and 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 is their metabolic demand so high that even though you're giving a decent amount of calories to the enteral root, do you need to supplement with temp uh, parenteral nutrition? Uh, in which case, I would probably, if we were supplementing, I would probably choose a, 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 a device that was meant for more short term, uh, uh, such as a pick line, uh, which is good for three months, or uh, a uh, temporary access device for an ICU patient that can be removed at discharge? Uh, or is it a long-term requiring central access? 
and a tunneled line, which is for more long-term access. Uh, temporary access and supplemental access can sometimes be provided with, uh, per, uh, uh, with uh, uh, um, uh, peripheral TPN. Uh, we don't use a lot of midline catheters in pediatrics. They do in adults, but the uh, uh, midline catheter has the same limitations that a peripheral catheter do does. You're limited in terms of the amount of nutrition you can administer th through those, the osmolarity you can administer through those. So it by no means meets the entire needs of the patient. So it's really about their tolerance of ventral feeds, their gastric motility uh, or gastric emptying. Uh, do they need uh, a nasoenteric tube or would they suffice with gastrostomy feeds? Uh, and then once we've selected the appropriate uh, delivery device for the patient, we would uh, either place that device or have that device placed by others. I, does that answer your question? It does. And and that actually, I did have a follow-up question written down about the midline catheter. So I'm glad that you touched on that because I know that those are growing in popularity, but you know, it's it's not a one for one replacement with this with the pick line, right? Right. And if you have an ICU patient with a, a very high metabolic demand, uh, uh, or a low metabolic demand based on uh, on their energy expenditure, uh, if you think about it, those of you who were around years ago before we had indirect calorimetry, we were overfeeding those patients a tremendous amount. Uh, because we were looking at normal requirements of nutrition for their age and their size and so forth. Some of those patients were retaining a lot of fluid, so they are inaccurate weights, their adiposity wasn't taken into consideration. So we tended in those days to overfeed the patients. Now we have indirect colorimetry and we can really get an estimate of the patient's energy requirements and we can target uh, the nutrition uh, based on that. Uh, and in some cases, that's just a matter of doing peripheral TPN in addition to enteral. And then once we determine if enteral is not even an option, we can go with uh, uh, central access. But, but the midline catheters can be used for supplementation, like I said. But again, the midline catheters have their limitations, higher fl phlebitis, rates of phlebitis and other complications. Some even said, some studies even show that uh, 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 PICC lines uh, and uh, midlines have a higher infection rate with TPN than central lines, although I find that hard to believe because a lot of the data says otherwise. I think the data is mixed on that, uh, but uh, uh, there are complications that are unique to midlines. They only last for, you know, a, a couple of months, uh, and then you'll usually, usually lose those lines. Uh, they are prone to phlebitis, and, uh, and that is a problem that results in needing the line to be removed. And a, a peripheral access device like a, a, a regular IV catheter uh, is, is, needs to be rotated every six days if you're running TPN through it, and it's very hard on the veins. Well, I think it would be, it would be challenging for the patient, too, to have that you know, constant intervention and constant upkeep where, you know, if there's other options available, we'd want to go that route. Picks and midlines are associated with that too. It cramps the patient's style when they get out of the hospital. They've got a uh, dressing on their arm. Uh, it's hard for them to shower. Uh, it, it, it impacts their quality of life for sure. 
So in your recent presentation, you had touched on misconnections and how the occurrence of misconnections really can be deadly for our patients. So where do you see the greatest risk of misconnections occurring? And what in particular could dietitians do to help prevent this from happening in the patients that they're caring for? Well, well, let, let let me start with a little of the history on that. Misconnections were something that we've been talking about since the 70s. Uh, there, it was widely addressed in Europe after disasters where different countries had different connecting devices for their IV therapy, for their enteral devices. So a patient traveling from one country to the next in Europe might find that their device that they may get in that country is incompatible with the device in their home country. And that reared its ugly head during uh, an air show where there was a huge mass casualty disaster and they set up triage areas that were hosted by uh, different countries. And uh, one country was starting the IVs and moving it along to the next stage, which was sponsored by another country. And they found they couldn't hook up the IVs to the IV catheter that was placed in the previous setting. So they very early on felt they really needed to address this issue Uh, it it would be like us having that same issue from state to state in the United States. So they are really well ahead of this than we are. I remember Peg Gunter, the director of practice equality at Aspen coming and speaking at Hasbro about this back in the eighties and people were, were, you, you may as well have been talking about the Easter bunny. If you talked about this to NASA guys, they tell you that um, why would you even have a device that could be hooked up to another inappropriate device? So in NASA, every single device connection is different and unique to what you're hooking up to. I was a nursing instructor and went to a room and watched one of my students feverishly trying to put a PO syringe with Tylenol into the IV tubing. Um, We had a speaker, a, a mom of a patient come to our nursing section meeting to speak. Uh, the, the daughter was an adult pregnant woman who had a nurse inadvertently attach her enteral feeding device to her central line. It killed the patient and her unborn child. So that, in that sense, it can be deadly. Now, uh, GEDSA, which is a group of, uh, from industry, has partnered with Aspen and our consumer groups uh, some of you may be familiar with the Oli Foundation, to, uh, to uh, push the development of or the implementation of the NFIT connectors. And the NFIT connectors have been widely accepted as the be-all and end-all connectors for enteral feeds. And we've gone to uh, oral feeding syringes. So almost every hospital now has similar devices, but I can tell you, uh, we bring up NFIT at every monthly nursing section meeting and the rollout is at a snail's pace. California has said that they will make NFIT as their required device for their state, but yet there are hospitals in the state and uh, uh, companies uh, providing home care in that state who still have not uh, committed to NFIT. Hospitals struggle with this, um, and, 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 and even some of our surgeons have identified problems with 
gastroenteric feeding tubes where the gastric limb of the gastroenteric feeding tube is being used for um, uh, 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 decompression. And, uh, and the uh, enteral or the, uh, uh, the um, jejunal limb of the tube is used for feeds. We found that the uh, NFIT device does not adequately decompress and there have been bad outcomes for patients. And so we've kept the legacy devices available in addition to NFIT uh, because they are better uh, suited, those connections, for decompression. And that is the only way we're recommending the legacy uh, tubing. But again, this has been a, a lumbrous process that I have to say, we still haven't even rolled out in my institution. We had a committee together and we were working with our vendors and working with our purchasing department. And it all kind of fell flat on its face about a year ago and I haven't heard a word from it since. Um, so, how can we, uh, uh, I think that getting on board with NFIT, learning about as much as we can about NFIT, working with our hospital administrators to, uh, to spearhead and champion uh, the use of NFIT uh, as a connector with all their enteral devices uh, so that no, there is no ability within your institution to misconnect. And I think that that is one of the primary things that one can do. And the other thing is to be a spokesperson for it among the nursing staff, among your fellow nutrition support staff uh, that are using uh, uh, devices that are compatible with intravenous devices and so on, to uh, not use workarounds to try and modify uh, devices so they can end up being uh, mis misconnected. Uh, I think that's the, the the most important thing to do. And if you have any influence with, with your vendors in home care, um, uh, in terms of uh, your DME companies, in terms of stocking this equipment so it's available for home care patients, one of the biggest disconnects that I find is that hospitals have rolled out NFIT and then the, uh, the uh, uh, home care companies that they are dealing with have not, uh, which presents a problem when transitioning patients from hospital to home. So I think we all, nurses, physicians, dietitians, whoever's involved in nutrition support, really has to be a spokesperson, spokesperson for this, an advocate for this, and to work very closely with hospital administrators and your purchasing people to uh, implement this. So in your opinion, what do you think is contributing to the snail's pace of this rollout? Because, because you're right, this has been going on for years we've been talking about this conversion so what's taking so long well the, for a long time there was a number of syringe companies that uh had not gotten on board and decided not to participate with getsa in the rollout they weren't going to um, provide nfit syringes i'm not going to mention the name of the syringe company but uh they had essentially they're the largest syringe company uh in in the united states uh, so that re represented a problem for medication delivery. Another problem was that some of the uh, syringes that were developed, at least for pediatric patients, had too much dead space in the NFIT connector so that when you're administering very small volumes of medications, like, for example, uh, digoxin, which is a very minute uh, uh, administration, uh, that's PO in a liquid form, uh, the dose delivery was inaccurate due to the dead space in the syringe. So that was a problem. Um, getting uh, hospital administrators 
to uh, commit to the importance of this, to see the importance of this. Um, if you haven't had, I think hospital administrators, I don't mean to sound like I'm against hospital administrators, they're wonderful, but they tend to be reactive to situations. So if you haven't had a catastrophe or disaster for a patient because of a misconnection, they don't really see the importance of transitioning, which is costly. You have to purchase the product, you have to use up the supply that exists in your inventory, um, and having the expertise uh, to train uh, uh, caregivers to be trained, the trainers, uh, and roll this out uh, has been has has really been part of the um, the uh, the delay. I believe there is also, interestingly enough, a group of consumers who have threatened lawsuits that put the kibosh on implementation in a couple of institutions. They're uh, almost militantly opposed to the NFIT. We have some patients who are crushing nuts and berries and whatever and, and placing that into their G-tubes and the NFIT devices offer some resistance. There've been some studies that looked at gravity infusions that are slower than, uh, uh, than with or without the NFIT connections. Uh, in pediatrics, we don't see a problem with that because we use a pump, an infusion pump. So where patients are gravity infusing and pushing uh, very viscous or um, uh, a lot of particles in the, in the, in the product that they're introducing. Uh, they're kind of, you know, there's been a huge up, uh, uh, uproar from consumers about using this device. And we went through this with pureed diets for a period of time. And I think pureed diets need to be blenderized appropriately so that they are easily administered through the unfit connectors. And then once that's done, it's really not a problem. So I think it's the selling this to consumers, selling this to administrators, uh, and then educating staff are the major barriers at this point. Yeah, so I think you bring up a lot of really interesting points. And you know, I can see from an, an administrator perspective, I don't have a burning platform because it's not happened at my facility. It's gonna cost me a lot of money and we're always watching you know, what our bottom line is. And it may make my customers or my patients unhappy. So I can see where it may be an uphill battle for a lot of organizations to make the change. Yes, yes. And like I said, sometimes we're a bit reactionary and rather than spend the money, if we're really, isn't there a problem, it's not broken, let's not fix it. I think what NFIT does is it eliminates the potential for a problem. And there have been near misses of course, and there's been cat catastrophes, uh, but they have not been uh, uh, felt by every organization. And I think that that uh, diminishes the sense of urgency around this. So broadening the scope from misconnections to just general complications of care, what can we as dietitians do to prevent other types of events like line infections or tube malpositioning? Well, with, with regard to line infections, what we usually do in most institutions, and we've been doing this for about 20 or 30 years now, is bundling. And we're bundling for a lot of different things. We're bundling for ventilator-associated pneumonia. We're bundling for prevention of CLABSIs, or which is the uh, central line infections. Uh, um, and, and these uh, procedures 
are are bundled in uh, there there is um, varying amounts of data to support each of them and we try to develop the best practice as we can bundling and so what we're doing is using alcohol locks um, uh, that is uh, believed to um, diminish fibrin sheath formation and the presence of biofilm on lines um, there are limitations with that because it can only be used in silicone catheters which most pick lines are polyurethane, um, so they can't be used in our pick lines and many of our pick lines and our uh, temporary central lines. Uh, but that is one method. And the, one of the barriers to that is, is now with the FDA approving uh, uh, dehydrated ethanol and the shortage of ethanol, 70% ethanol, it's becoming cost prohibitive to provide that. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, it's um, causing problems with access. And there are other devices, other uh, 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 substances in um, Europe that are used. Europe widely uses teraladine, which is an antimicrobial, but it's not an antibiotic. Doesn't result in uh, 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 hyperresistance. Uh, it's safe. It's effective, but it's not FDA approved in this country. Uh, so th that's one method. Some people are using chlor chlorhexidine wipes, wiping down the patient with chlorhexidine every day. Of course, that has limitations. It's not, you're not able to use that in very small birth weight infants, preemies, uh, because of absorption. Uh, there is a bundling of central line placement techniques, which is really more pertaining to the persons who place the lines. There are uh, central line care techniques, the flushing, the prepping of uh, connections, uh, with alcohol, letting it dry, um, um, chlorhexidine impregnated dressings. Uh, there are even um, um, antibiotic impregnated central lines that can be placed. These are all things that are probably not within the, 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 the sphere of the dietitian to impact, but certainly being aware of all those things and bundling and to identify those things that people have recommended uh, to use to prevent central line infections, uh, knowing uh, the lines that are at greater risk uh, and um, uh, the lines that are at greater risk are certainly temporary lines, least at risk are tunneled lines. Uh, so advocating for those when the patient is, you know, uh, uh, three months out with a pick line, maybe we need to consider uh, a line that's a little bit lower uh, risk. Um, so I think that that uh, is, those are really the, the, the methods uh, and really the dietitian having a knowledge of that, um, uh, limiting blood draws. So when you want your TPN labs on the patient, uh, what we do is we wait until the TPN bag gets hung at night rather than breaking into the TPN while it's infusing, the nurse is breaking in to change the lines and reflush all the lines with new TPN. That's the time to get into the line and get the blood work because they're getting into the line anyway, rather than breaking into the central line in the middle of the infusion. Um, those are, 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 are uh, certainly things that we can talk up among our, our colleagues. With regard to uh, the risks of uh, malpositioned Entral uh, nutrition devices. Obviously, uh, when they're placed, the uh, gold standard is uh, X-ray uh, for determining correct placement. 
uh, uh, educating uh, colleagues about not using air insufflation and auscultation over the epigastrum to confirm placement. There's been disasters, airway disasters, where tubes have been flushed with air that were misplaced into the airway. Uh, pushing for pH as a method to screen for correct placement. pH is below five uh, for a nasogastric uh, tube uh, to confirm placement. But again, the x-ray is a gold standard. And if the patient is on um, H2 blockers or, pro uh, or proton pump inhibitors, you're gonna have a higher pH anyway, that's gonna be less accurate. There are other devices for placing nasoenteric tubes that are pretty high in accuracy. Uh, electromagnetic placements, uh, self-propelling tubes uh, are, are even limiting the need for x-rays because they tend to be placed accurately. But they are still, some of them are even 1% inaccurately with 20% uh, uh, complications such as pneumothorax for a tube that's not placed correctly. So advocating for correct uh, um, um, placement with G-tubes, we require a um, contrast study. And some places, even some radiologists will tell you they would rather have a fluoroscopic test for uh, uh, gastrostomy tube placements uh, that are routinely replaced uh, in the emergency department before becoming dislodged, particularly if it's traumatic. And, and in our institution, if it's the first six weeks after that G-tube has been placed, automatically requires a dye study to confirm placement. Um, and because we have had some disasters with creating false tracks where the tube really wasn't in place, the patient went home and used it to infuse an enteral feed and they ended up with a whopping chemical peritonitis from, uh, from uh, enteral feeds being introduced into the peritoneum. So uh, knowing those methods of checking placement and ensuring that your patients have had their uh, placements confirmed correctly and appropriately, knowing the guidelines for assessing placement uh, and educating your colleagues about that. Um, I, it's my understanding that very often dietitians are placing those tubes uh, in some settings. So knowing the correct guidelines for determining correct placement is extremely important and should be a part of the credentialing or, uh, or um, not so much credentialing, but skills acquisition for any new staff. So when you're educating your patients on the risk and benefits of EN or PN access, whether it's they're, they're getting a device for the first time, or maybe you're exploring different options, what approach do you take with them so that they really understand what they're getting into? Well, every patient that gets an enteral feeding device, um, not so much the NG tubes, um, a standard feeding tube, but we do discuss those with them too. But the ones that are more fraught with complications, I, I you know, it's part of the consent procedure for any surgical procedure to talk about any potential complications associated with placements. We have educational materials that we give families about enteral feeding devices, all different enteral feeding devices, whether it be a nasogastric tube, temporary, or whether it be a nasoenteric tube, whether it be a, 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 a gastrostomy tube, a jejunostomy. Uh, those patients get all of those materials, education materials. Our nurses are um, 
have are very competent at teaching the families about uh, how to care for those tubes. And we see them in the office all the time. So we always tell the patients what to expect. Uh, patients will develop granulomas around their tube. These are minor complications that would need to be treated with either chemical cautery or electric cautery in the OR. Most of the time, it can be even managed with topical medications. Bleeding is very common on these devices uh, because they're usually passed through a tract that has a mucosal lining, which is very friable. You bump it, it bleeds. You put a baby on their abdomen in their crib with a G-tube and the mom goes into the room and the sheets are all covered with blood. She freaks out <clears throat> if she doesn't realize that, yes, it's gonna bleed a little bit. Don't worry about it as long as it doesn't continue to bleed. So there, we, we do spend a lot of time with patients going over all the potential complications, uh, the, the ways to troubleshoot, you know, problems they say uh, for obstruction, if the tube becomes dislodged, sending the patient home with a Foley catheter that could be kept in the, uh, the tract to stent it open until they can get to an emergency department if they don't have a replacement device or haven't been taught to, to replace the device at home. But I think that any of these patients that have these devices, whatever it is, I think we have also video uh, recordings that go over all these materials. So if you don't have these resources, um, I would highly suggest you develop them. Um, <clears throat> and then there are some that are commercially available. Um, we ha have a mom uh, here in this country that has a child with a G-tube and she uh, has created uh, an education booklet that is remarkably good and it's free. She'll send them to you by the case in English and Spanish. And it goes over all the different devices. Um, we have um, a videotapes that the patients can watch in their rooms on, uh, on their closed circuit TVs. Um, and then we continue to do that education as an outpatient. And that education is reinforced by our home care companies, uh, by the nurses that go into the home. We have case managers that go, uh, that see these patients at discharge and facilitate their transition to home. And we make sure that they keep their policies and procedures consistent with uh, the, one, the hospitals that's sending them there uh, so that they're not getting mixed messages from one setting to the next. So we just got a couple of minutes left with the podcast and I wanted to switch gears. You mentioned earlier that you are a, I think you said a chair for Aspen. So can you tell us a little bit about that volunteer experience? I was uh, very active in the American Pediatric Surgical Nurses Association. I was on their board for nine years and I was president of that organization. And I came to Aspen after my sort of retirement from that group uh, not from that group, but from those roles, uh, wanting to do a little bit more professionally. Um, and I was very close with the dietitians who said, Neil, you should really join Aspen. So I did uh, because of my interest in nutrition support. Uh, I started going to the meetings and that's all you have to do really is show up. <laughs> There's nothing remarkable I'd say about me that uh, makes me a candidate for that job. It's just that uh, uh, it's very tough to get these positions filled. Um, so I went into the role as chair of the nursing section. As you know, if you're a member of Aspen, there are various clinical sections 
like an intestinal failure section, a pediatric intestinal failure section. There are a variety of committees, TPN Safety Committee, Enteral Feeding Committee, uh, Public Policy Committee. Um, there are so many opportunities for volunteerism in that organization. So when I uh, started attending my first few meetings, I went to the section meeting and very quickly became absorbed into the process. I started uh, doing reviews for the Elsevier uh, project, which is a, um, <clears throat> a policy procedure manual that's used um, in mostly critical care units and the military. And uh, Aspen has uh, nursing, a nursing policy and procedure manual. And uh, Aspen has partnered with Elsevier uh, and we're responsible for 40 adult and pediatric uh, skills. And so I started uh, overseeing the pediatric skills section, I was doing a ton of reviews. Uh, and then they asked me if I would uh, uh, consider uh, taking on the chair elect position. And I did that for two years and I am just completing my first year as chair of that group. Uh, that group is uh, a pretty uh, robust group of nurses. Um, they uh, are involved in almost every committee and many of the sections. So uh, we meet monthly. And so uh, during that time, we have a, um, a work plan every year that gets revised and we go through the work plan and the various sections and have discussion about where we're at with that. Each members of the committees give their committee reports so that members of the section are abreast to what's going on in the different committees. Um, and uh, so I sort of oversee that, maintain the minutes, uh, 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 commandeer the meeting, if you will, uh, for an hour uh, once a month. Um, and I have, uh, as, as chair-elect, I was responsible for overseeing the Elsevier project for both adult and pediatric, and that's what our chair-elect does now. Uh, but I'm still very involved in that process. Um, and, and sort of any of the initiatives that uh, Aspen wants uh, us to participate in uh, come through our group, uh, whether it be looking for speakers for conference, which we try very hard to make sure nursing is well represented, uh, finding ways to collaborate with other disciplines on a development of topics for our annual meeting. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty robust group. I'm on the uh, public policy committee, which is where I started out before I took on the chair position. I'm very interested in public policy. And then when I finished up my president year in my other life, I um, uh, was chair of the uh, public policy SIG, which was different because it was a purely nursing organization. Uh, but uh, uh, our public policy committee is very active uh, right now, uh, this month, we're attending uh, a Zoom, it's now because of the pandemic, uh, the Digestive Disease National Coalition, which goes to Washington every year to meet with legislators uh, and has a variety of talking points related to nutrition support and digestive diseases in particular. Um, I did go to that once and I have attended the Nurse in Washington Internship Program, which is a boot camp for nurses interested in public policy. Uh, and that is uh, held in uh, DC every year where you meet with your specific senators and representatives to discuss issues that are relevant to nursing. Uh, and so we're uh, also a member of the Nursing Organization Alliance, which is some 65 nursing organizations. And we send folks to the Nursing Alliance Leadership Academy, which is sort of a boot camp for nurses who want to take on more of a leadership role. 
it's mostly presidents of organizations and uh, board members. So it's geared more towards fiscal responsibility and that sort of thing. So we have lots of opportunities for nurses. One of the most interesting things that I noticed is we just went to a new management company, so we now have a database. That was kind of remarkable to me that we were such a large organization and we really couldn't really identify anything about our section members. Now we have a new database and if people have updated their profiles, we can get uh, rich uh, information about who they are. And we come to found, find out most recently when we had our first few reports that we have more non-nurses in our nursing section than we have nurses. We have physicians, pharmacists, dietitians who have joined. The, granted, they are not active members, but all of our sections are open to anyone who wants to join, who anyone is interested. So if you are, and you're a member of Aspen, I will invite, I invite you here and now to participate and, uh, and come to our section forum. Well, Neil, this has been really just fantastic. And I think my favorite part is how you take so many complex things, your complex patient populations, all of the volunteer work that you're doing through Aspen, and you make it just sound so simple and realistic. So I love that. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, I think with that, we'll conclude today's podcast. Listeners, to learn more about the volunteer opportunities and the nursing practice section within Aspen, please visit nutritioncare.org. And to learn more about EN and PN access specifically, please visit the DNS web store at dnsdpg.org. All you have to do is search for enteral and perennial nutrition slide sets, and we have that product available at a discounted rate for members. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening. 